I need to find out where they got that soundtrack. <laughs> that is some cool music. Great job, guys, on the video bumper. Hey, it's wonderful to be back with you. Um, I was away a couple weeks. One week I was away with uh, some dear friends, a group of pastors, actually here in the Pittsburgh area. And you should know God is doing something truly amazing in our city. Um, for almost a year now, I've been in a, a cohort of pastors of different denominations, not just, I'm the only one in the Alliance, but here in the Pittsburgh area, and we become good friends, and we had a, a, a retreat where we prayed together and just encouraged one another. It was a wonderful time. It's going to be capped off um, in, in some ways tomorrow, because out of this group, um, what was birthed was an opportunity. Said, what would happen? We asked this question what would happen if the faith community from all over Pittsburgh gathered at Heinz Field to worship and pray? And I'll be honest, right at the beginning, we asked that question. We thought the likelihood of that happening is probably zilch, but it's happening. And it's called Pittsburgh Praise Tomorrow. You probably have heard about it, but I do want to put a plug in. It's going to take place at Heinz Field. We were there today gathering and making sure all the details were done. There are churches and, and uh, the faith community from all over uh, Pittsburgh. The Catholic diocese in, in Pittsburgh is going to be involved as well. And it is for the purpose of prayer, of worship, and to demonstrate unity in the body of Christ. And so I invite all of you to come. A few details. I... Some have asked, you know, does it cost to park there? Unfortunately, we couldn't get around that. Um, I believe it's like 5 to $8 to park, but rumor has it it's within walking distance of ACAC. Hint, hint. So um, the fact that you go to church here, yeah, you can, you can park here and walk down. It'll be a great time. It starts at 1 o'clock. The service will start at 2. Concessions will be open, and it's going to be a, a great time. So I hope to see you there. Uh, Pastor Christian's involved in the worship. Josh is going to be directing the choir. There's about 100, and I think heard 120 in the choir. And there's already expecting about 20,000 people to be there tomorrow. So it's going to be a great event. Also, um, this past week, I had the opportunity to be in Orlando visiting the Life Conference. Many of you are aware because you supported, we sent, I believe, 55 to 60 uh, high school students to Florida for Life Conference this week. And I'm, I'm telling you what, I had never experienced life, the conference. And I was absolutely, see what I did there? Yeah. Um, I had never experienced the Life Conference uh, until this past week, and I filmed a little bit on my phone, and I want to show you a piece of that. So watch the screen if you would.
me tell you something. It's probably pretty hard to grasp what was happening in this moment from a video that's captured by a phone. You can bring the lights back up, guys. But what you are seeing here is some five to 6,000, 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old kids with their hands raised singing Jesus Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, you silence fear. And I'm telling you, I came back and I, was, I left that service with an incredible hope for the next generation. We hear a lot of junk about the young kids of today. And I was so pumped and excited seeing kids in high school worshiping God and putting their faith in him. And so you, I just want to thank you for supporting them and encouraging them. And just continue to pray. I believe they're coming back uh, tomorrow or Monday, but it was a great time. All right, enough of the announcements. I want to get to this new series that we're starting called, He Said What?, Tough talk from Jesus. How many of you know Jesus said some pretty harsh things in the Bible? Okay? He did. Now, if you don't know that, I encourage you to read through the Gospels because there were some statements that Jesus made that are pretty hard to swallow. There are some things that Jesus said that can be very difficult for us to understand. And so over the next eight weeks, we're going to look at these statements. I'm going to be sharing on a lot of them. Some of our other staff are going to be preaching on them. And just to give you an idea, here are some of the statements, the hard things, the tough things, the harsh things that Jesus said that we're going to look at over the next eight weeks. Jesus said this, don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Wait a second. Isn't Jesus peace of the earth? What did he mean by that? Jesus said it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He said what? What did Jesus mean by that? At one point, Jesus invites a man to follow him. And this man says, yes, Jesus, I will follow you. But my dad has just died. Let me go back and bury my father. And in that moment, Jesus says to the man, let the dead bury their own dead and follow me. Man, that's rough. Jesus said, here on earth, you're going to have many trials. You're going to have many sorrows. It's not easy to hear. At one point... A woman comes to Jesus, and she's pleading to Jesus for help. And the Bible says she, was, uh, she wasn't a Jewish person. And what is Jesus' response? Jesus says to her, to this woman who's looking for help, he says to her, it isn't right to take food from children and throw it to the dogs. I mean, he's comparing this woman to a dog. Why would Jesus say that? And one more, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said some hard things. And while these statements can leave the most faithful follower of Jesus scratching their head for understanding, we're not alone. Those closest to Jesus, his friends, when Jesus was here on earth, his disciples, they also wrestled with understanding things that Jesus said at times. One point in the Gospels, Jesus was explaining to his disciples, it was time for them to go to Jerusalem. And when they went to Jerusalem, Jesus was going to be beaten, mocked, arrested, killed, and after three days, he would resurrect. 
And the Bible says that this was the disciples' response when Jesus said those things. The Bible says in Luke 18, the disciples didn't understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. And they did not know what he was talking about. So you and I are in good company. When Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring the sword, we're like, what? The disciples felt the same way at times. So the question is then, what do we do with passages in the Bible that are difficult to understand? First things first, this is what we're going to talk about this weekend. How do we handle difficult passages? But here's what's really important. I believe the greatest problem that we have with the Bible is not a lack of understanding, but rather a lack of application. So while we're going to spend the next eight weeks talking about things that are really hard to understand, let's make sure we really get our biggest problem with the Bible isn't a lack of understanding. It's simply a lack of being obedient to it. Amen? Okay? But before we begin to talk about how to interpret the Bible... We must first recognize what the Bible is. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to be really straightforward with you this weekend on this message. We are going to dive into what the Bible is, and it's going to seem a bit academic. It's going to seem a bit heavy. But here's why this is so important that we talk about this from the pulpit to God's people. This book, Scripture, the Bible is the foundation for everything that we believe. Amen? And if we hold that to be true, then we had better understand what this book really is, how to read it, how to interpret it. So tonight, I'm going to dive deep. It's going to seem maybe a bit like you're in school for a moment, but that's important because we have to understand what the Bible is, how we should read it, and how we should interpret difficult passages. So let's talk about the Bible for just a moment. I don't want to assume that everybody understands what the Bible is and how it came to be. For some of you, and those, some of you may be watching online, this may be the first time that you ever heard this. The 66 books of the Bible, which include both the Old Testament and the New Testament, were written over the course of 1,500 years by 40 authors and present a picture of God's rescue plan for humanity. The last book in the Old Testament was finished about 330 years before the birth of Jesus. The New Testament was finished around 90 AD. The structure of the Bible that we have today, the Bible, whatever translation you have, was finalized around 400 AD. Although it was almost a thousand years later before it was available to ordinary men and women like you and I in English. For centuries, only Bibles were written in handwritten Latin until the invention of the printing press in the 15th century. And the drive to translate the Bible into other languages, that itself changed everything. Now, there were those who strongly believed that the Bible, the foundation of the Christian faith, should be available to everyone. How many are thankful for that? We would not have the Bible today if there wasn't those who said every man, woman, and child should have a Bible in their language. Understand that this belief was then 
and is still dangerous today. The first man to produce a printed New Testament in English, his name, anybody know it? William Tyndale. William Tyndale was the first man to print the New Testament, and he was executed for his work. Many people have risked jail for smuggling Bibles into countries where it is banned by governing authorities. Even today, the Bible is illegal in some parts of the world. But what is the Bible? What is the Bible? Well, first of all, we need to look at what does the Bible say about itself? Not what does Alan say, what does the scripture say about what the Bible is? So quickly, four verses of what the Bible says about itself, what God's word said about the Bible. This is a verse, we looked at it during the series of Judges, you're familiar with it, 2 Timothy. Paul writes, all scripture, even scripture that's really hard to understand, we've talked about it a lot, but all scripture from beginning to end is inspired by God and it's useful to teach us what is true. It's also useful to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. The Bible, Paul says, corrects us when we are wrong, and the Bible teaches us what to do, what is right. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that the word of God, Scripture, is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, the writer of Hebrews says it is the Bible that exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. How many have ever read the Bible and been convicted about what you feel and what you think? Yes, that's what the Bible does, the writer of Hebrews says. If you go to the Old Testament, the psalmist says that your word, Scripture, God, your word is a lamp to guide my feet in the middle of darkness, in the middle of our circumstances, in the middle of this dark world, it is God's word that is a lamp to guide our feet and to light a path for our lives. Even the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament says that the grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of God, scripture, stands forever. So that's what the Bible says about itself. But now let me offer you this simple yet significant explanation of what the Bible is and what it means for us. The Bible is God's voice and the primary way in which he chooses to speak to us. It is the only reliable way to learn who God is and what his character is like. It is completely true and trustworthy for living life abundantly. Understand that this book is the primary way in which God speaks to his people. It is the only way in which we understand who God is and his character and what he is like. It is completely true and it is trustworthy for living a life of abundance. Now understand, God still speaks today. Do you know that? God still speaks today. He didn't stop speaking after the Bible was written. God still speaks today. However, the Bible is the primary way in which he has chosen to communicate with us. And every other way that God, that God speaks must align with the Bible because God does not contradict himself. Are you following me? Okay. So what are some other ways in which God speaks to us today? Prayer. Okay, God speaks in prayer. 
Sometimes God will use other believers. How many of you ever had somebody speak to you, the Lord has spoken to you through other believers? Of course. For me, there have been times, even in worship, lyrics of a song or in the presence of God in times of corporate worship or even private worship, I have heard that still small voice that God speaks. He speaks that way. All of this is God speaking through his Holy Spirit. But understand, prayer, worship, hearing the voice of the Lord, that still small voice in your soul and your spirit, hearing it from another believer, all of that submits to this book. God will never give you a word from someone else that contradicts this book. This is the primary way in which God speaks. Now, for a lot of people, I don't know, most of you here tonight probably have been Christ followers for quite some time. Some of you may have not. You may recently, in the last year or two years, you're watching online, you're fairly new to the faith. And oftentimes, for newer believers, even some those who have been believers for a long time, you can question the reliability of the Bible. How do we know that this book is true? How many have ever wondered that? Yeah, it's okay. And there is a world and a culture that doubts this book. So how do we know the Bible is reliable? I want to go through four ways in which we can believe and trust that this book is reliable. So this is where I'm going to dive into history a little bit. But it's really important that we understand and we trust that this book is what it says it is. Here's the first way. One of the ways in which we know the Bible is reliable is that we have thousands of biblical manuscripts. What are manuscripts? I'm glad you asked. First of all, know this. We do not have any original writing of biblical books. Okay, when the Bible was originally written, it was often written on animal skin or other materials that would quickly deteriorate. What we do have are copies of copies of the original. Those are called manuscripts. Now, this isn't unique to the Bible. Okay, if you study archaeology or history at all, you will find that ancient manuscripts often have copies of copies, not the original. So how do we know then that these copies of copies, what we call manuscripts, how can we know that they are accurate? I'm glad you asked. We have an incredible high number of surviving manuscripts, roughly 6,000 surviving manuscripts of the New Testament alone. This makes it the best attested document of all ancient writings. Do you realize that? Out of all ancient writings, we have 6,000 manuscripts of this book. The next closest is Homer's Iliad, which only has 600 existing copies. So if anyone ever questions you the validity, we have 6,000 manuscripts. Now, having such a large number of manuscripts allows us to compare. So if you have 6,000 copies, if you compare them all, well, then you can know how accurate the document is. When making these comparisons, we have found that comparing the amount of manuscript evidence for the New Testament, it is 99.5% accurate. Of those 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, they are 99.5% accurate. So it is reliable. Two, archaeology supports the biblical record. Here's what I mean by that. 
Archaeology has repeatedly confirmed the accuracy of biblical places, events, and people that are in the Bible. In fact, no archaeological finds have ever disproved a single biblical event, civilization, or individual. There is evidence for more than 100 biblical characters that are in the Bible in secular history, both from the Old and the New Testaments. So what about Jesus? Can you prove that Jesus was a real person? Among those that mention Jesus Christ are two famous Roman historians. Both wrote in the second century and were born within 50 years of the death of Jesus. A Roman senator born in A.D. 56 in his most famous historical work called Annals confirms that connection between Jesus and the religion of Christianity. So secular history confirms Jesus Christ. Here's the third reason. The original writings were faithfully preserved. Are you with me in all this? I know this is a lot of history. Okay, some of you are, wake up here. This is so important. We have to know that this book is true and reliable. Here's the thing. The original writings were faithfully preserved. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s allowed scholars to compare Old Testament manuscripts that were separated by hundreds of years. One particular import of importance was the newly discovered copy of the book of Isaiah, which predated the earliest known copy of the book by a thousand years. In the 1940s, they discovered the book of Isaiah. The previous copy we had was a thousand years old. And here's what they found. Comparing the two ancient documents a thousand years apart, the book of Isaiah, revealed that they were nearly identical except for some minor spelling and stylistic differences. Here's the last one I'm going to share with you. The New Testament was written shortly after the events it records. You see, once you establish that our Bibles contain reliable copies of what was originally written, you may find it necessary to provide evidence that the originals were accurate to begin with. How many understand it would mean very little to have accurate copies of the New Testament if the originals weren't true to begin with? Are you with me? Okay, so how do we know what the New Testament says is true? Well, when it comes to the New Testament... It's important to know that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were recorded relatively soon after the events which they record. At the very latest, historians and theologians agree, at the very latest, the four Gospels were written only 40 to 60 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Many New Testament books predate those gospels. Paul's letters to the Galatians and Ephesians, for example, were likely written 15 to 20 years after the time of Christ. Since the written record of the New Testament, those gospels, was so close to the actual events of Jesus, those who wrote those books were able to know whether it was true or not. But here's the thing. Think about this. If the story of Jesus was written so close to Jesus being resurrected within 30, 40 years, there would have been eyewitnesses who could have discredited the text if they weren't accurate. Do you get that? So if somebody writes the record so close to what happens and there are other people there that say, no, that's not how it went down, they would have attested it. But we don't have that. 
Here's the bottom line. We can have confidence that both the Old and New Testaments are accurate depictions of historical events that have been faithfully preserved through the ages. So again, the Bible is God's voice. It's the primary way in which he chooses to speak to us. It is the only reliable way to learn who God is and what his character is like. It's completely true, trustworthy for living a life abundantly. All right. So what about these passages in the Bible that are difficult to understand? These he said what statements? How do we know Jesus meant what he said during these perplexing statements? So when it comes to explaining what the Bible means, often we hear comments like this, both from believers and non-believers alike. You probably have heard these comments when it comes to interpreting the Bible. Well, that's just your interpretation. How many of you ever heard that? Well, you can make the Bible say anything you want. Anybody heard that one? You can't really understand the Bible because it's full of contradiction. Well, no one can understand the true meaning of anything anyone says. That's a very popular one right now. And here's a big one. Well, this is just what the Bible means to me. Now, how many know we are in trouble if we read the Bible and our interpretation is, well, this is just what it means to me. And this is, that you can have what it means to you and you can have what it means to you. How many know we get in real trouble if that's how we read the Bible? Well, all of these statements are about principles of biblical interpretation. Now, there's a real fancy theological term, and it's called hermeneutics. When I was in seminary, I had to take a class on hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is how do you interpret the Bible? It's the process of how we go about reading and understanding what the Bible says. So how do we interpret the Bible? How should we interpret the Bible? If we say that the only source of truth is the Bible, then the important question becomes, how do we get the right message? Especially when we're dealing with an ancient book, and in some cases, going back many centuries ago. The fact is, even with the most recent writings in the New Testament, when we read the Bible... We are dealing with a different time, a different people, a different culture, a different geographic setting, a different socio sociological setting, different language. And so there are a lot of bridges that we have to cross to understand what the Bible meant when it was written and what it means to us today. So understanding that, it's so important that when we read the Bible, we cannot bring the Bible into modern times. What we must do is take the modern reader into ancient times. Do you understand the significance of that? We see a lot of that today. Well, here, we're just going to bring the, we're going to update the Bible to the 21st century. Can't do that. God's word never changes. What we must do when we read the Bible is go back and understand what it meant to the people at that time. And then, what are the implications that it has for us today? There is a significant difference in doing that. So, here's how we're going to close today. And I really encourage you, if you have a pen and piece of paper, you may want to write these down. If you don't, that's okay. Um, they'll have this on our website, or you can watch this at a later time. But I'm going to give you seven principles for properly interpreting Scripture. How many feel like you're in school? Okay? I know. 
I know, I promise we'll get back to like normal. Pre- but this is good stuff. You have to know this. You have to know how to read and how to interpret the Bible. Why? Let me tell you, Bible interpretation is not just for the educated. It's not just for the theologian. It's not just for the historian or the pastor. Yes, I went to seminary, went to hermeneutics, learned how to do that. But all of God's people need to learn how to interpret and read the Bible. Every follower of Jesus can and should grow in their ability to interpret God's word. And here's the good news. We live at a time in the 21st century where not only do we have a printing press where you can get this book in just about any translation, any color, any cover, digitally, you can get it any way you want. There are also incredible tools online that can help you, free tools. And so I'm going to give you some of those today. As we talk about this, before I get into these principles, um, there are two online tools that are absolutely fabulous. I'm sure some of you have other tools and use those, but two that have helped me throughout the years. Blueletterbible.com is a great online tool. It's completely free. You can go there, and they have different translations of the Bibles. They have different meanings of the Bible. You can look up the Hebrew word or the Greek word. There are commentaries there, blueletterbible.com. Um, I'm not getting paid to support these or anything like that. Um, I'm just letting you know. Um, Olive Tree. Uh, I think it's olivetree.com. It's, uh, it's, it's what I used to study. There, you can buy commentaries in that. They have apps for it. Um, there's a web version of that. But Blue Letter Bible and Olive Tree are great. There are plenty of commentaries. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Uh, and two books, before I get into this, I just want to let you know about. Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart um, wrote a book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. I'm going to leave these down here after the service if you want to take a picture or take a note of them. Uh, this is a book often used in seminary. In fact, I was talking to the, uh, the dean of um, Alliance Theological Seminary, Nyack College, and I was asking him, and he said, this is the number one book on uh, how to read the Bible for all it's worth. It's an easy read. It's not a heavy read. It's great talking about the different literatures in the Bible and how to go about reading it. So I highly recommend that. And then this is a book I read probably about once every two years. It's by Randolph Richards. It's called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, Removing Cultural Blinders to Better Understand the Bible. How many know oftentimes it's really hard for us as Americans living in a Western world to read an ancient book that was written in an Eastern culture? This book talks about that. It talks about the life of Jesus and the Jewish people and the culture at that time. It's a great way if you want to kind of understand. So these two books I really highly recommend. And again, you can check them out afterwards. Okay, we're going to wrap up in the next 10 minutes with these seven principles for properly interpreting Scripture. And again, here's why I'm going through that this weekend. We're going to talk about these difficult passages over the next seven weeks. But as we look at those... It's really important that we understand how we interpret it. So that's why we're going through this. Here's the first principle. Interpretation must be based on the author's intention of meaning and in their historical context. Now I'm going to explain what this means, but let me read that again. Interpretation, when we interpret the Bible, we must do this based on the author's intention. So when we read the Gospel of John, we need to be thinking... What is John's intention in writing that? What is his meaning? And what is 
their historical context. What this means is we must understand the author's world, their culture, the geography, the politics at that time, the religion at that time, the thinking of the people, the perspectives, their worldview, what's going on at the time, how people think. All of this is informing you on the historical context of the day. And this is where you can get great help from a good library. This is where I get in trouble when I'm preaching because my wife will go home and she goes, you got too deep into that history stuff. When you're talking about the church in Corinth and the church in Ephesus. But it's really important that as you read First and Second Corinthians that you understand why was Paul writing these letters, what was going on in the church of Corinth that he needed to write these letters. It will make God's word become more clear and what the implications are for us if we understand the author's original intention and meaning and the historical context. Here's the second one. Second principle. Our interpretations must be done in the context of the passage. Pastor Allen, what do you mean by that? Easy way of saying this. We cannot just pluck one verse out of a Bible and build a doctrine or theology on it. We have to look at the entire passage. And I can tell you, you've seen it all the time. TV evangelists do this. There are denominations that are built on picking one verse up without looking at the verses before it, looking at the verses after it. So anytime we go to interpret, we must look at the context of the entire passage. So I'm going to give you a verse that we often use out of context so many times. Okay, And don't raise your hand if you've done this. Philippians 4.13. Does anybody know what Philippians 4.13 is off the top of your head? I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. Now, that's a great verse. You see it on t-shirts. I probably prayed it before football and basketball games when I was in high school. I can do all things through Christ. I'm going to drop 30 tonight. Okay? What is the context of that verse? We're not going to go and look at it. The context, though, you can look at it later, in that verse... Paul is talking about enduring difficult times. Paul is saying, God has put me, my circumstances right now are trouble. I am suffering. But through Christ, I can endure this circumstance. Paul is not talking about, I can accomplish all that I desire to do in the world. He's talking about enduring what God has put in for me. Do you see the difference? Okay? You can't pluck a verse without looking at its entire context. Here's the third principle. Interpret the Bible normally, allowing for the use of figurative language. And I know this is, this is pretty deep, and I, I need to explain that. But interpret the Bible normally. Basically meaning when you read the Bible, interpret it as it says. But understand that there are times when the Bible is using figurative language. Take the plain meaning of the text at face value. You interpret the Bible, Scripture, through normal language, real people, real history. And when the literal doesn't make sense, you probably have a figure of speech or an illustration. And this is a normal part of a normal expression. Okay, we use it. You can, you, you know, I mean, I'm hungry as a horse. Okay, sarcasm. I'm not a horse. I'm just expressing the amount of my hunger. The Bible does that. These are normal people using normal language. I'll give you a couple examples. Isaiah 55, 12 says the trees will clap their hands. How many understand trees don't have hands? They can't clap. 
Okay, well, the prophet Isaiah is using figurative language. Jesus did this. Here's one, Isaiah 18, verse 9. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Now, none of us would have any eyes. Jesus didn't mean for us literally to gouge out our eyes. He's using hyperbole. Okay, he's talking about the sin in us. So there are times when things are figurative. Okay, here's the fourth principle. Interpretation must be distinguished from implication. Well, here's what I mean by that. While there is historical interpretation, that's what I talked about at the very beginning. We have to understand the historical context. While that's important, there are many implications that can apply and should apply to our modern context. Basically, what I mean is when we are reading God's word, we should always ask the question, what is God saying in this text right now? What is the implication of what I'm reading right now for my life and for the kingdom of God? Here's an example. John chapter 12. Mary anoints Jesus' feet and she washes his feet with her hair breaking an expensive jar of perfume that Judas says was a year's worth of wages, okay? Here's the difference between implication and application, okay? When I preach a sermon every weekend, I want to end with an implication, not an application. And let me explain the difference. The implication of the story of Mary is that worship costs us something. Pastor Christian preached on that back on our worship weekend. Worship should cost us something. That is the implication to my life. But the application of how that plays out in each and every one of us, only the Holy Spirit can reveal. You see what I'm saying? So I can't say to you, well, here's worship should cost us something. You may be a natural worshiper where you lift your hands and it's natural to do, but God may, the Holy Spirit may be challenging you in other ways to grow. Whereas the person beside you, they're very uncomfortable lifting their hands. So for them, the application would be you need to lift your hands. The implication for all of us is that worship should cost us something. Do you see the difference? So the implication is for all of us, but then the Holy Spirit will reveal how you are to apply it to your life. Two more. Three more. Here's the fifth. Recognize the distinction. This is big. Recognize the distinction. As we talk about interpreting the Bible, we have to recognize the distinction between Israel and the church. There is a difference. There is a distinction between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. There is a distinction between the people of Israel in the Old Testament and Jesus' followers today. Promises made to Israel in the Old Testament cannot automatically be transferred to the church in which we are a part of today. Also, followers of Jesus, hear me in this. We do not live under Mosaic law. Somebody say, thank God. You need to go back and read Mosaic Law if you're not thankful for that. We do not live under Mosaic Law. We live under a new covenant confirmed by the death and resurrection of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, I could preach a whole sermon on this, and I'm not going to because I have two minutes. But Jesus came to fulfill the law. And when he was trapped by the Pharisees, what's the important commandment? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, look at the Ten Commandments. Do not murder, 
do not steal, do not covet what your neighbor has. All of that, if you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to murder. You're not going to steal. You're not going to covet what your neighbor has. So we live under a different covenant. We don't live. Things cannot automatically be transferred from Israel to the church of today. Leviticus 19 verse 9. If you believe that, you're probably breaking Mosaic law tonight because Leviticus 19, 19 says that we must not wear a garment made of different kinds of fabric. You're probably breaking that right now. There is a difference between Israel in the Old Testament and Jesus' followers of the New Testament. Here's the last two. Quickly, we must recognize the type of literature that you're reading. That book that I mentioned, How to Read the Bible, talks about that. The Bible contains many different types of literature. Law, narrative, wisdom, poetry, gospel, parables, epistles, apocalyptic, there's revelation. Each of these have different features. You read them different. You process them different. And it must be considered when you're interpreting the text. Here's the last one. <clears throat> and this may be the most important one as we wrestle, as we try to interpret really difficult texts and passages in the Bible. We have to let the Bible interpret itself. Here's what I mean. Scripture must interpret Scripture. When we read a difficult passage, we should interpret difficult passage with the clear ones. Because the Bible is God's word and because the Bible and because God is true, the Bible will not contradict itself. So whenever we come to a passage that's really hard to understand, like if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, then what we should do is we should look through the Bible and see what Jesus said about other things. If we find a, a difficult passage where there's one peculiar verse, there's some things in the Bible, the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about. There may be one little verse. And so when you're processing, well, what do you mean by that, Lord? Look through the Bible and see what the Bible says about that topic in other areas. Let the Bible interpret itself. Second Peter Chapter 1, verse 20, the Apostle Peter writes this. Above all, you must realize, he's speaking about paying attention to Scripture. He says, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding. Okay, no prophet, no prophet, prophecy in Scripture ever came from the own prophet's understanding. Or from human initiative. Peter says, no, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. So when we come to passages that we struggle with, we should look to God for the answers. Allow scripture to interpret scripture. So when we say, what are the big ones? We use the phrase around here, there are major doctrines and then there are what we call secondary doctrines that we don't argue over. Hopefully... All of us agree and stand affirm on the major doctrines. Things like the Trinity, God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit. Major doctrine. Who Jesus is, that when Jesus came to earth, he was born being fully man and fully God. Jesus Christ. Major doctrine. Salvation. 
that salvation is available to anyone only through grace in Jesus Christ. Major doctrine. The authority of Scripture, the Bible, major doctrine. That one day Jesus will come again, major doctrine. But then there are secondary doctrines, things that we don't even all agree with in here. I just mentioned Jesus coming again. There are some that are pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib. Okay? We see differently on that. There are those that see differently on the gifts. We're interpreting Scripture. We're wrestling with it. The role of women in ministry, we wrestle with those things. But weaving throughout all of these principles and how we interpret Scripture, Peter says it's the Holy Spirit. And here's how I want to end tonight. The Holy Spirit was giving to, given to all of us to help us interpret and read God's Word. So no matter how good you may get at historical context and reading Hebrew and reading the Greek or Latin, however, whatever tools and commentaries you may have, the Holy Spirit is the greatest one who can help us. John 14, 15 through 16, he writes, If you love me, obey my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, speaking of the Holy Spirit, who will never leave you. And he, the Holy Spirit, is the one who leads in all truth. Would you stand to your feet tonight? I know it has been a, a bit of a different message, and I, I don't apologize for it, but I hope you understand the significance, the reliability of this book. It's tried and it's true. It can be difficult to understand at times. We can wrestle and even see differently. But if we don't have a baseline, if we all can't agree that this is the book that we live from, we're like the book of Judges, doing everything that's right in our own eyes. And so I challenge you, and I want to pray for you as we dismiss today, that as you read God's word, the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word which is alive and active. It is not passive. It is not dead. It is not like any other book or transcript or manuscript. It's not a, an ancient book, though it's taken from ancient times. I believe that when we read your word, that your spirit works in us. There are those that read your word and you reveal yourself to them, that healing takes place, that joy comes, that peace comes. Lord, because your word is alive. So may it come alive in us. I pray that over the next seven weeks as we wrestle with this, that God, your spirit would lead us in all truth. And if there be anyone here that has questioned the reliability of your word, I pray that you would cement it in their hearts tonight. In the mighty name of Jesus. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. Hey, before you're dismissed, before you're dismissed, um, I, I just want to mention uh, Jen talked about the Deutschtown Music Festival. It's in two weeks. Um, as your pastor, I just want to speak to the vision real quick on why we're doing what we're doing. One of our markers of our DNA is loving people where they are. Here's why we're doing this Deutschtown Music Fest. Here's why we're not having a Saturday night service. Here's why we're only having one service and we're going out. That line, if you build it, they will come, makes for a great line in a movie. It's not biblical. Okay, If you build it, they will come. It's great for Field of Dreams. This is an opportunity, though, that we have to go. 
to get out of these four walls. And the biggest reason we're doing, this is an opportunity where we can go into the community. They invited us. And we said, let's take church outside. Let's worship. Let's take the instruments. Let's preach the gospel. What would happen if we went out to the park and, and we did what we did here? What would happen if we did it all together? We don't get to do that very often. And so we're having one service all together outside. It's going to be different. We're going to preach the gospel and we're going to worship and we're going to believe that God does something in that park. Amen? Amen. That's why we're doing it. We need your help. There are cards back there. If you want to sign up and volunteer, it would greatly help us. Help with kids. Help with students, uh, food, all of that. That's why we're doing it. Don't miss out. It's happening on Sunday, July 24th. God bless you. Have a great week.